1: On April the 19th, 1943, Albert Hoffman had the first ever LSD trip. And this pivotal moment in psychedelic history happened not in San Francisco or New York, but in Basel in Switzerland. You see, Albert Hoffman wasn't some beatnik, gonzo journalist, Woodstock attending deadhead. No, 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 no. He was a respectable scientist working for the pharmaceutical company Sandoz. Five years previously, he'd created a compound, which he called LSD-25, as part of a series of experiments. Well, the tests went nowhere, and the creation was shelved, but there was something about it, something that stuck in his mind. And He wrote in his autobiography, LSD, My Problem Child, I could not forget the relatively uninteresting LSD-25. A peculiar Presentiment, the feeling that this substance could possess properties other than those established in the first investigations, induced me, five years after the first synthesis, to produce LSD-25 once again. He felt it was time to revisit that experiment. And so when he went into work that day in April, he decided to test it again, this time on himself. His lab notes tell us that at 4.20, he took a heavily diluted dose and he described it as tasteless. 40 minutes later, he left his last entry for the day. Five o'clock, beginning dizziness, feeling of anxiety, visual distortions, symptoms of paralysis, desire to laugh. Hello, I'm Dallas Campbell. And welcome to Patented, a podcast about the history of inventions from history. Hits. Today on the show, I'm joined by Tom Schroeder, author of Acid Test, LSD, Ecstasy, and the Power to Heal. Today on the show, Tom helps us track down the origins of LSD from promising accidental discovery to the illegal drug embraced by the 1960s and 70s counterculture, and find out what the future of LSD might look like. Welcome to the show, Tom Schroeder. It's lovely to have you here. Tom, we're going to talk about the invention of LSD, if that's okay with you. And you've written a book, Acid Test, LSD, Ecstasy, and the Power to Heal. And obviously, my podcast is about when things begin. It's the origins of things. So, In my little bit of research, I was thinking the 1940s. But no, so 1938. So what was happening in 1938?
2: Well, the reason why that date's unfamiliar to you is because it was created in a lab, and it was tested on animals in 1938, and it was created by a corporate chemist named Albert Hoffman for Sandoz Company. And he was looking for something that could stimulate circulation and respiration. They were looking for possible medicines. And what happened was that Sandus really started out as manufacturing dyes and later they did saccharin. They weren't really a chemical company until a guy that they hired named Alfred Stoll discovered a way to isolate the active compound in a rye bacteria, infected rye plants.
1: So rye as in the wheat rye, as in rye bread that you would
2: eat? as in rye or gotomane. Okay. And back in the dark ages, whole villages would suddenly spaz out. They'd start getting weird symptoms. They'd seem to go crazy. They'd have limbs sort of blackened and fingers blackened and fall off. Really bad stuff. It killed thousands and thousands of people. And they later realized that it was from this contaminated rye that had gotten this contamination in it. And... Midwives discovered that sometimes if they used it in a certain way, it could hasten the birth process. And it was used as a folk medicine for hundreds of years, but it also could be a deadly poison in the wrong dosages. And just using the tainted rye, you couldn't control dosage, of course. So what Stoll did was by identifying the active part of that, which was called ergotamine, and being able to isolate it in a laboratory, Then they raised the potential of being able to control the dosage precisely and maybe use it for a medicine. But they also realized that there were all sorts of compounds in this substance. And there was one sort of base of it, which was called lysergic acid. So all these active compounds in this rye bacteria were sort of based around this one compound called lysergic acid.
1: What were sandals actually looking for? Did they just cast a big wide net looking for, a, you know, someone's heard about this rye infection?
2: Yeah, they're looking for things that are medically active in a way that could be useful. For instance, okay. something that would stimulate circulation and respiration could be useful for people who have circulation and respiratory problems, which are a lot of people. And so they had this junior guy, Hoffman, who joined the company in the 30s, And his task was to take this lysergic acid and start chemically combining it with other compounds to play around with it, see what it did. So he was going into work every morning and like messing around with these compounds. And he discovered a way to synthesize it and to sort of artificially connect them with other compounds. And he went through just a bunch of these things and he got through 24 of them without finding much of use. And then he decided to combine it with a kind of ammonia distillate that was called diethylamide. So that became lysergic acid. Diethylamide was the compound that he was playing with. So in German, acid it had, begins with an S. So that was LSD. And it was the 25th one he did. So this was in his notes. This was called LSD-25. And this was in 1938 and he synthesized this and he was hoping that it would have some good properties, but he was disappointed because it did sort of provoke uterine contractions, but only 70% as well as the original.
1: Was he sort of testing all these different compounds out on animals or? On animals, on animals. On animals, yeah. okay, yeah.
2: And so they look at, okay, what, what's happening with the respiration? What's happening with the circulation? what's happening with the uterine contractions. And so this one, he found that, yeah, it did have some effect, but it wasn't as good as the original. And the only other thing he noticed was that the test animals sort of grew unusually kind of nervous and rested when they gave it. But basically they said, okay, scratch that off. And he went on to some other letter 26. By the way, as he went on, He went on to discover a medically useful drug that is still used today, actually is being used in treatment of Alzheimer's, and it made a lot of money for Sandoz. So he was quite a success. But still, five years later, he says, I never was able to get that drug LSD-25 out of my head. And he couldn't really explain why. What he said to a friend was it was some kind of strange presentiment. And as I was doing my research, I don't think I found anyone who made this connection. But before he became a chemist, as a young man, you know, maybe in the 1920s, one day he was walking through the woods and just spontaneously, I'm going to read this because it's so cool. What he said was, all at once, everything appeared in an uncommonly clear light. Was this something I had simply failed to notice before? Was I suddenly discovering the spring forest as it actually looked? It shone with the most beautiful radiance, speaking to the heart, as though it wanted to encompass me in its majesty. I was filled with an indescribable sensation of joy, oneness, and blissful security. And so he was so moved by that, it was like a religious experience, and he was so moved by it that he decided he needed to be an artist in order to convey this incredible feeling that he'd had. And then, so he spent quite a few years attempting to become an artist until he realized he just didn't have the talent. (laughs) He was very good. Did he have this experience because he'd taken the
1: acid? This wasn't some part of having a trip and he'd have the transcendental magical experience. No,
2: he was just having a spontaneous sort of religious experience. So he was,
1: how interesting, because it sounds like when you read it like that, it sounds exactly how people might describe what it is to take mushrooms or any kind of psychoactive drug.
2: Right, that's what's so amazing about it. And then, so what does he do? He becomes a corporate chemist. And back then <laughs> in the early thirties, he's working in this poorly ventilated lab with test tubes and beakers and Bunsen burners and equipment that really hasn't changed much for a hundred years, just sort of going through these rote things with very materialistic situation. And then he says he has this strange presentiment about this compound that he synthesized five years earlier, but for some reason it keeps coming into his head. And, you know, was it the cattle was, acted so strangely that made him come back to it? And he just couldn't come up with an answer. It's like a Jungian
1: synchronicity. It's really weird because you hear these stories of inventions or people who invent stuff. Like Edison, when he was inventing the light bulb, tried hundreds of different things for a filament and then chanced on the correct one completely by accident or with penicillin, you know, they left a Petri dish by an open window and lo and behold. There's always this sort of slightly kind of almost not magical but almost magical moments where things just happen.
2: Well, in this case, it's even weirder because he hit on it by accident but it didn't do anything. And then five yeah. years later, he tries it again. I mean, there's just no <laughs> explanation for it. And he tries it again. And what happens is, is that he starts to feel weird. He understands that ergonomine is like a dangerous substance, right? So when he's dealing with this stuff, he's using all these precautions. So he's deciding to actually ingest it himself. No, no, he's not. That's, that's the interesting thing. No, he's still thing. doing it on animals. Still okay. intending just to make it again to try some more tests. And he's okay. keeping away from it. I mean, he's being very careful. And so on April 16th, 1943, he's working with this stuff. And he has to write a memo the next day explaining what happened. He says, I was forced to interrupt my work in the laboratory in the middle of the afternoon and proceed home being affected by a remarkable restlessness combined with a slight dizziness. At home, I lay down and sank into a not unpleasant, intoxicated-like condition, characterized by an extremely stimulated imagination. In a dreamlike state with eyes closed, I found the daylight to be unpleasantly glaring. I perceived an uninterrupted stream of fantastic pictures, extraordinary shapes, with intense kaleidoscopic play of colors. So he had been so careful with this stuff that at first he thought maybe it was this like chloroform like solvent that he was using in the process. So he goes to the lab the next day and he intentionally inhales this chloroform like substance, but nothing really happens. So then he starts thinking, well, there's only one possible explanation. I must have absorbed some of that LSD 25 through my skin. I must have touched it somehow. But that seemed weird to him because the minute quantities that he could have possibly absorbed that way couldn't possibly have affected him, he thought. But it was so intriguing to him. And of course, knowing his history of having had that spontaneous experience as a young man, you can see how it'd be especially intriguing that three days later on April 19th, without telling anybody at Sandoz except his lab assistant, he goes in and he dissolved 250 millionth of a gram of this LSD-25 and put it in a glass of water and drank it.
1: That's not very much. (laughs) That's that's homeopathic levels. It's exactly
2: a thousand times less than the smallest amount of any other psychoactive substance that he knew of. So it's one thousandth. And he expected it to do exactly nothing. Because this is the way you experiment, if you're experimenting on yourself on something that might be deadly poison, is that you do just a tiny, 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 tiny bit of it that you know isn't going to have any effect, and then you do a tiny, tiny, tiny bit more. And he expected to do this for a long period of time until he felt the slightest effect. But instead, that's not what happened. And remember, this is a thousand times less than the next psychoactive substance that have an effect. So I'm going to read to you his description. Yes, please. Forty minutes later, he wrote exactly one note in his lab book. Five o'clock, beginning dizziness, feeling of anxiety, visual distortions, symptoms of paralysis, desire to laugh. But then after he wrote that, he asked his lab assistant, I've got to get home. And they only had bicycles. So they had to ride on their bicycles, the distance between the lab and where he was living. And later he described this. He says, everything in my field of vision wavered and was distorted as if seen in a curved mirror. I also had the sensation of being unable to move from the spot. Nevertheless, my assistant later told me that we had traveled very rapidly. Finally, we arrived at home safe and sound, and I was just barely capable of asking my companion to summon our family doctor and request milk from the neighbors. And the reason that he asked for milk was when you don't know what you might be poisoned by, milk is kind of a universal antidote. It's the best guess you can make. And he knew that. So he thought maybe he'd really done it this time. He poisoned himself. So he's in the room and he says, everything in the room spun around and the familiar objects and pieces of furniture assumed grotesque, threatening forms. The lady next door whom I scarcely recognized was no longer Mrs. R but rather a malevolent, insidious witch with a colored mask. I was seized by the dreadful fear of going insane." So he thinks he's poisoned himself. He's actually doing the first ever trip on LSD. And as he later discovered and wrote about, in an LSD trip, the set of your mind and the setting that you do it in are absolutely essential to create a positive experience. Oh, yes. And what could be a worse setting Than feeling that you've accidentally poisoned yourself with something that, you know, could either drive you permanently crazy or- But also
1: if it's the first LSD trip, not only is he in a bad situation to be taking LSD, no one's ever taken LSD before. So it's not like he knew what he was doing. So this must've just been absolutely, I mean, you can take LSD now and you know you've taken LSD, so you can always rationalize to yourself. But being in that situation, I mean, he must've just gone out of his mind, like properly out of his mind. So And
2: the doctor, he actually called a doctor, but then the doctor found that his respiration and pulse, all the vital signs were completely normal. And then after a few hours, he felt better. And the interesting thing was when he woke up the next morning, this is what he wrote. Everything glistened and sparkled in a fresh light. The world was as if newly created. All my senses vibrated in a condition of highest sensitivity, which persisted for the entire day. So now he's thinking, well, OK, this is really something. I've really stumbled on something here. So he goes to tell his bosses what happened. First of all, that's got to be the most novel reason for missing the afternoon at work that <laughs> any employee has <laughs> ever come up with. And in fact, they didn't believe him <laughs> because he told them how much he took. And they just could not believe that that small amount of anything could have that kind of big effect. And his boss said, well, I have a strong will and I could suppress the effects of psychoactive drugs just through my will.
1: Can I just pause there? Because presumably psychoactive drugs existed before that in religious ceremonies and you know, people taking peyote and ayahuasca and all these sorts of things. So psychoactive drugs had existed beforehand.
2: Correct, for thousands of years. Yeah, for thousands of years, yes, yes exactly. And in most cultures, it just so happened that in Europe and Western America, in the Western world, basically, didn't really have a well-defined tradition of that that had come to the fore in the, the age of reason and the age of science. And Mesklin came to the attention of scientists in the late 19th and early 20th century. And then people took it themselves and they wrote about these fantastic images that they saw and everything in the early 20th century, but nobody paid much attention to it. I guess they just felt that, you know, it was just part of this sort of exotic, primitive natives' lives. And nobody paid any attention to it or thought it was of much use. But LSD had a couple of notable differences from mescaline and the other natural psychedelics, which was it was easy to synthesize at that time. They had all the ability to do that in great quantities, very cheaply, and that these tiny amounts were effective. So, Suddenly, you know, instead of the sort of laborious process of trying to get mescaline or synthesize it in the amounts that you needed, suddenly they could synthesize a little bit amount and dose the entire world with it, basically. And it was also came at a time when psychiatry was struggling with mental illness. At the time, there was Freudian analysis and, you know, whatever primitive methods that they still used from, you know, the dark ages where they'd lock people up in asylums and put them in ice baths or whatever. And they were getting nowhere with it. They didn't understand it. They couldn't treat it. So it occurred to the boss who said that, oh, I can withstand it. Let me try it. Well, he freaked out entirely. And Hoffman had to laugh when he read his report. And but what they thought was, OK, this is like temporary insanity. So Maybe all these psychologists and psychiatrists that are struggling with major mental illness, maybe if they had the experience of being temporarily insane, that that would help them out and they could find some use for it, if only for their own sort of insight into the thing they were trying to treat.
1: So that was quite a quick process linking it. Actually, this is something that could treat mental illness. It could treat things like- Well, remember their whole point is
2: trying to find medical uses for these things they're discovering, right? So anytime they get something that has a big effect, they sit around and they think, how could we market this? What use could this serve?
1: They weren't thinking of it as a recreational drug at that point, like, hey, hippies are gonna love this.
2: (laughs) In fact, it really wasn't thought of as a recreational drug for another 20 years. And in that time, they packaged it up with a little cover letter, and they mailed the packages to research institutes, to universities, to individual psychiatrists all over the world. And this little package would arrive and said, hey, this is LSD-25. Perhaps you might find a use for this. And so they start feeding it to people in their tests. And they have these graduate students sort of babysitting these people. And they're witnessing all these weird things happen. And there was this guy named Stanislav Grof, and he's in Prague. And he's at the medical institute in Prague and he's babysitting these people. And he's seeing enough so that he's thinking, wow, this is I've never seen anything like this, I wanna try it. But they had a rule that graduate students couldn't actually participate in the trials. So he basically got out of it as quickly as he could and volunteered for a trial. And it completely changed his life. And at the time, they're still thinking, okay, this is a temporary insanity. It will give us some insight. But he didn't experience it that way. He said, I was hit by a radiance that seemed comparable to the epicenter of a nuclear explosion, or perhaps the light of supernatural brilliance, said in Oriental scriptures to appear to us at the moment of death. The divine manifested itself and took me over in a modern scientific laboratory. You know, and he said, it completely changed my life. It lasted only a few hours and its most significant part, only about 10 minutes. It resulted in a profound personal transformation and spiritual awakening. So this guy Stan Grof then decides to devote his life. He says this doesn't create a temporary insanity, what this does is it gives you the insight that you could use to maybe cure yourself of insanity.
1: And we'll be back after this short break. History tells us that in 1455, the royal houses of Lancaster and York went to war, beginning a 30-year dynastic struggle for the throne that would change the course of English history forever. It became known as the Wars of the Roses.
2: At this time, the Wars of the Roses are well underway. There's so much uncertainty throughout the country and who's going to come
0: through all of this.
1: This month... We're dedicating a special series of episodes to finding out all the answers to your burning questions. People have just assumed the Bulfords were bad. But when was this scribbled in? It's effectively an act of graffiti on a parliamentary roll. Who were the key players? What were the critical battles and switches of allegiance? Was it ever really a case of good and bad? Join me, Matt Lewis, on the Gone Medieval podcast from History Hit... Every Saturday, for brand new episodes.
3: Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra.
1: Let's talk a little bit about the uses. So we're now getting to the stage where it's going to be used to treat psychiatric conditions, schizophrenia, alcoholism, depression, these sorts of things. What kind of success levels? Like, Did it work as a useful drug?
2: Yes, it worked unprecedentedly well. And we're now in the 1950s. And this becomes the most studied psychological drug in history. And thousands and thousands of people are taking it and... They're using it in clinic and they're having unbelievable success with it. They're saying like, well, this is accomplishing things that couldn't be accomplished in 10 years of psychoanalysis. They're having hardcore alcoholics instantly dropping drinking and becoming completely sober. Was there an explanation
1: as to why it was working or is there a thesis as to why psychedelics would have that effect on people with, you know.
2: Well, that's a really interesting thing is, you know, like penicillin, if you have an infection, you take penicillin and the penicillin kills the bacteria that's causing the infection. It's very direct. It's very simple. You're not consciously aware of it happening. It just happens in your body. But with LSD, it's not the drug. I mean, the drug is doing stuff and they're still trying to get further understanding of how it actually works in the brain, but they do know that it connects to receptors in your neuronal receptors in your brain, changing the way your brain processes information. But the curative part, and they were doing this research with alcoholics in Canada, and they had this insight that what really was happening here was not, the drug wasn't curing the alcoholism. The drug was creating an experience that allowed people to see past their problems. People would say, you know, I suddenly rose up to a point where I understood that I wanted to be clean, that I didn't want to drink, and that I just saw things in a way that made me a different person. If it was so successful, as you described, just take us through the process of how it became so demonized. We can thank the Nazis and the CIA in a way. Because what happened was that during the war, you know, the Nazis did all sorts of these awful medical experiments. For instance, they wanted to see how much cold somebody could survive. So they would like take their uh, concentration camp prisoners and they'd strip them down and throw them in a pool of ice water and just leave them there. And just to see how long it took for them to die. But they also were aware of mescaline. And so they figured, well, maybe that would be a good interrogation drug. Or maybe it would be a good torture drug, you know, make torture worse. So the CIA, after the war, got all the records of this Nazi research. And then along came LSD so that it was easy to make and plentiful. So they decide, well, you know, maybe it could prevent our own agents could take it if they were caught and it would make them incapable of telling the truth. Or, Maybe we could give it to subjects in interrogation and make it a truth drug so they'd have to tell the truth. Is this
1: MKUltra was the famous CIA LSD mind control experiments, wasn't it? Is this what we're talking about? Right.
2: So they did all sorts of things. They also thought, you know, maybe we could disgrace a foreign politician by slipping it to him when he's about to give a speech. Or, you know, they had all these sort of crazy ideas about how it could be used none of which ever sort of amounted to anything useful even useful from their perspective but what they did was they gave it to people unsuspectingly or they gave it to people and then subjected them to harsh interrogation and of course they did a lot of damages i mean if somebody starts having this experience and doesn't know what it is They slip into this whole fear thing, and the fear is magnified. And there were suicides involved with this. They even funded a brothel in San Francisco, and they'd slip it into the drinks of the Johns and then sort of follow them and see what happened. You know, it was extremely irresponsible and dangerous what they were doing. But they also paid for a bunch of research, sponsored a bunch of research in psychiatric hospitals, et cetera. And... What this did was, so thousands of people, often on college campuses, are sort of getting through the CIA's sort of unaudited research, they're getting doses of LSD, and some of them are having these amazing experiences, just like Stan Grof did. And so this creates both a black market for LSD from the CIA-funded research, and it also puts a lot of doses out on the street. So suddenly this guy, he was the grandson of a U.S. senator named Stanley Owsley, and he gets one of these sort of CIA sponsored doses and decides that this is the solution to world peace, that the way you felt connected to the world and everything was connected and that we all sort of belong to each other, et cetera, all that stuff, that this would change everybody so that there would be a lot of incentive to sort of be peaceful and not destroy things. And so he spent three weeks in the library at Berkeley teaching himself how to manufacture this. And he manufactured thousands of doses and spread it all around, including giving it to a young Ken Kesey. Yeah, he wrote the famous uh, book. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's
1: Nest. Yeah, And
2: he wrote the first part of that book when he was tripping. <laughs> right. And it's brilliant. It is brilliant. It's, yeah. That'll also reverberate later on. And the Grateful Dead. And so with Owsley's Acid, they started having these Kool-Aid acid tests, which is, you know, where the name of my book came from. And so it becomes this fad on college campus and it spreads all over.
1: So what year are we talking? Because I always think about sort of 1968 as the sort of famous summer of love.
2: What year are we talking? This is in the mid-60s. This is like working mid-60s. its way up to that. So very early on, and our culture is so tightly bound psychologically, and any kind of inebriation is suspect. But this particular kind of inebriation seems so weird and outlandish that it was very scary to people. And plus, it hooked up with this whole Vietnam War protest movement. And so it kind of got entangled with this whole sort of cultural revolution that was going on.
1: It was an extraordinary time. you think about it, yeah. I mean, Vietnam was going on. Apollo was going on. LSD was going on. A sort of revolution in music was going on. It was a pretty heady time. It all seemed to feed into each other. Yes.
2: And of course, the authority figures at the time were very threatened by all these changes that were happening.
1: Of course. It seemed totally out of control
2: to them. And there were people like Tim Leary who were telling people to tune in, turn on and drop out. And, you know, he meaning drop out of society. So they kind of started pointing the finger at LSD, saying LSD is like causing people to reject our culture, reject our society. And so they started really going after it legally. And remember that now for 20 years, this is being used with great success to treat all sorts of difficult conditions, addiction, alcoholism, depression, and even like bad marriages. People were having psychedelic trips and sort of going under analysis with their partners and working out problems that they hadn't been able to in their marriages, that sort of thing. And so this has been going on for 20 years. There were clinics. Stan Groff was invited to be a head of the psychiatric research department at the University of Maryland based on the fact that he had the most clinical experience using LSD in therapy. And this was in the late 60s. But then in 1971, they made LSD a Schedule I drug, which meant that it was like on the same level as heroin in terms of law enforcement. And this was the most researched drug in the world. All research shut down on a dime. Groff was out of a job. Every graduate student who had expressed interest in it had to disavow it or risk losing their careers, it was completely and successfully shut down. However, it didn't shut down illegal use of it. In fact, that was expanding. So, I mean, it was one of these things that did not accomplish what it was aimed to do, which was to shut down all this illegal use. But what it did do was shut down all investigation into how it could be used in a responsible and useful way.
1: It's a really fascinating journey. So we've gone from it being a drug to help people to part of this great cultural revolution to it being banned. But I really want to ask you about how we're re-evaluating LSD now in terms of it being not just a recreational drug, it's still obviously still around, but are we re-evaluating it as a useful drug to help people with psychiatric conditions?
2: Oh, we're way, way down that road. And what happened was there was a group of people who had been involved in that early therapy community you know, of the 50s and the 60s, who said, this is BS. This is crazy. This stuff is incredibly useful. And they refused to accept it. And there is this one guy that I focus on in acid test named Rick Doblin, who really wasn't a therapist. He, He had no credentials at all. He was a university student who had done a lot of tripping and thought, this is it. This is the answer to all our psychological problems and possibly to world peace. And Groff, who failing to be able to do any more research, had gone and started teaching how to use these principles with natural ways to get high. You know, like he found that cultures where people did like heavy breathing and listening to loud music and percussion, and they got into an altered state. And he found that he could use that in the same way that he used LSD. It wasn't as effective or as easy, but, you know, the principles applied. So anyway, this guy, Rick Doblin, went there and decided that he wasn't going to let this. And so he basically taught himself everything he needed to do, got a doctorate in public policy, learned the science and spearheaded this 40 year effort to bring it back into legitimacy. And he had this organization he founded called the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Study. And now they're in the phase three trials for using ecstasy MDMA which is a synthetic psychedelic to treat PTSD and they're maybe two years away from having it become a legal prescribed therapy amazing
1: Tom it's such a fantastic story and I could sit and listen to you all day talking about it because it's absolutely brilliant and your book acid test is fantastic thank you so much for coming on the show it was a lot of fun
2: I enjoyed it Dallas thank you so much
1: Okay, thanks for joining us on the trip today. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Thanks again to you, Tom, for joining us. Lovely to meet you, lovely to chat. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please remember, leave us a review. It really helps us out. Don't forget to subscribe as ever. I am back every Wednesday and Sunday with brand new episodes. Coming up next, we've got a special episode for Mental Health Awareness Week, continuing the theme. This one is all about Prozac,
0: that magic drug of the 90s.
1: While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code PATENTED at the checkout. You get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.